Hey everyone, and welcome to the Christ Family Church Podcast. We are so glad that you've made the decision to take time out of your day to join us virtually. Whether you're at home right now or listening on your way to work, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Pastor Thomas Salili, lead pastor at New Life Community Church. It is a pleasure to be here at Christ Family Church. Uh, I feel like it's a, a little bit of a second home to me, and maybe you don't realize this because you've never seen me before, uh, but I was at Ron's ordination service. I've gotten to know Pastor Zachary really well uh, as we've been uh, entering into the Alliance of Reformed Churches together. Uh, it's been just a, a great time. You know, the, the young pastors tend to gravitate towards one another, uh, and we just find a little click, and it's great. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's the, the reason I feel so at home here is because I immediately walked in and three people said, hey, Jake, good morning. It's so great to see. And I'm like, no, no, bald beard, but no, not Jake. Uh, so that's okay. Like I, uh, Pastor Zachary said, uh, my home church is in Coralville, Iowa, and uh, he's there this morning preaching God's word. So I would encourage you this morning, if you, if you have a Bible in front of you, uh, open up uh, to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, I think it'll be up on the screen as well. So 1 Corinthians 8, and we're going to read God's word together. So it says this, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in this world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Will you pray with me this morning as we open and turn now to the application of God's word? God, we, we thank you for your word that speaks truth to our lives, that, that is a timeless word. Even though it was written so long ago, it speaks a word to us today. So as we uh, live these truths from your word, Father, I pray that you would challenge us, convict us of the areas that we have sinned, and lead us to be more like you. This we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. 
So I am not a, a native Iowan. Uh, I'm actually from Omaha, Nebraska, and you know it's okay if you want to boo with that. That's fine. I get the whole like Nebraska, Iowa thing back and forth. But then I lived seven years in Chicago before coming to Iowa. So I'm I'm an Iowa transplant. So you know if you see those bumper stickers or those things on the back of the cars, I'm one of those. Uh, but but when I first moved into my house in Coralville, Iowa, I to be honest with you, I was I was kind of surprised by what my city looked like. Because as I, I walked up, I looked around and I could see just a ton of trash. I was like, what, what is the deal around here? There's just garbage laying around everywhere. There were dressers and, and broken down pieces of furniture, office chairs just lying in front of people's yards. So I was a little upset, right? I talked to my real estate agent and I was like, listen, what's the deal? Did I move into uh, some city that's just kind of like a big trash heap? And he was like, oh, I see what the problem is. It's mayor's cleanup week. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. I don't know if Davenport has something like that, but it's a day where people have all of their trash, all of their broken down stuff, and they can put it out in order for it to be picked up as you're going throughout the day. Kind of a, an above and beyond trash day. And this changed the game altogether now, right? No longer did I see that as trash. Now I saw it as opportunity, right? So my wife and I would get in our car and we would go around because one man's trash is another man's treasure. Now it's a game. We go around and we're hunting for, for little pieces of furniture, things that we can find uh, to build our new home together. See, my wife and I love doing this kind of thing. In fact, we, we love doing it. Uh, typically, uh, we would go for things like garage sales. We've been doing this since we first met each other, working at a camp out in Fremont, Nebraska. On the weekends after we had been working and serving at this camp all week, we would go and drive around looking for garage sales to find that little piece of treasure. We don't want the garbage, right? We don't want the stuff that's really broken down, but we want this gem, this, this thing that we can find that would complete our home. So we would do this. We, we would drive around, we would find something, we'd stop, we'd pull off, and we would just be hunting for that thing that we were hoping for, or maybe the thing that we didn't even know that we wanted. And for the most part, we, we didn't give it a second thought. You see a garage sale, you stop at the garage sale. You check it out, you see what's there, you know, everyone wins, right? You get rid of your junk, I find new great stuff. I help you, you help me. And, and normally it's a no-brainer, right? We, we don't give it a second thought. You see a sale, you stop for the sale. Except there was this one uh, particular garage sale that gave us a little bit of pause. See, see, every year there was this particularly large garage sale that would happen just across the street from where my wife and I lived in seminary. And we would drive by it every day, and all week long, we would see cars coming and going from it. And from a distance, it looked like it had some really, really nice stuff, like, like stuff that would complete your home, stuff that would uh, make it feel more like a, a, a home rather than a house, stuff worth checking out. So you may ask, you know, what's, what's the deal? What's giving you pause? What's your quandary? And this was a, this garage sale was hosted by and at a house of worship up from another religion, one whose gospel ran antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who denied the authority of God's word and said that there were many ways, all ways to get to heaven, that we're all serving the same God. So I wondered to myself, and I wondered with my wife, would visiting or buying something from this garage sale be supporting this other religion? Would it be supporting what they stood for? Would I be compromising my beliefs and my witness to our neighbors if I snagged a nice dresser for 
and he felt convicted, conflicted in many ways. What do we do? How do we navigate this situation? Now, I want you just to pause for one minute and just do a little personal inventory. As I tell this story, how are you feeling right now? What's going on inside of you? Maybe you've come to a quick and easy answer for this, and you're saying, well, of course you don't go. Of course you don't go. Absolutely no, absolutely not. We don't support other religions. Or maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum here. Maybe you're hearing this story right now, and you're saying, well, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. What's all the fuss about? You're just participating in the free market. Can we really give a morality check on every place that we go to? I'm going to bet that, that even in this room, there are people who fall on either side of this issue. See, if I'm going to take a stab at it, I'm guessing that some of you uh, went through the same kind of back and forth when uh, big corporations or businesses that you've supported took political stances or, or social stances that you disagreed with. And maybe you wrestle with this. Maybe a, a company was your go-to realtor for a time, retailer for a time, or it was your favorite brand. But after this big press conference, after they, they went on the news, you felt conflicted about this. You said, can I still be a good and faithful Christian and still shop there? Can I still buy that without other people thinking less of me or, or hurting my witness? Should I be boycotting it like all the other Christians that I know? See, different Christians will answer these questions differently from one another. It's not a matter simply of, of denominational background or going with the crowd or political identity or even how closely you hold to the authority of the Word of God. I want, I want to say that really clear. This does not say that uh, people who could fall on different sides of this, one's more faithful, more biblical, and the other one, well, they just think less of God's Word. Because these disputable matters of conscience exist in every church. They exist in my church, and I know they exist in your church. They exist in every community from all the way back in Jesus' time up until now. And, and if I could put money on it, another disputable issue, by the way, just throw that out there. If I could put money on it, I would believe that our grandkids' churches are still going to be dealing with these things. Are there always clear-cut right and wrong biblical answers to all of these disputable matters? No. See, for some Christians, they will legitimately disagree on this, and this at times can cause some severe friction in the church. For some, it could be so emotionally charged, it feels like a life and death kind of thing. It could feel like something that divides the church. See, Tim Molhoff and Richard Langer, in their book, Winsome Conviction, they write this. See, these, these truly are contentious matters, these things, these disputable matters, either because brothers and sisters in Christ will drudge right and wrong differently, or because one Christian views the matter as right or wrong, and the other views the issue as a mere difference of opinion. You see the difference there? Some think it's just a, an agree to disagree, and some are feeling these heartfelt, sincere convictions of heart, that in their spirit they feel like this is wrong. How do we navigate these? How, how do we think biblically about this? Do we have any hope? Do we have any help? Thankfully, we do. See, thankfully, this is exactly what is happening in the church in Corinth. See, this is what Paul is addressing when he talks about food that is sacrificed to idols. 
See, maybe when I was reading the text this morning and you heard this out loud, maybe you felt some distance from the text a little bit. Like you're, you're hearing this and you're saying, well, you know, I've never offered food sacrifice to idols. I, I've never been offered anything like this. Maybe unless you went to like uh, somewhere in the eastern part of the world, like India. You said, this isn't really applicable to me. Maybe you're just going through this in your Bible reading plan and you come to this passage and you're like, well, that's not me. So you just write N-A in the margin. You're just like, not applicable. Just flip it on over. But I think we all have asked ourselves if participating at times in a specific practice might compromise our Christian testimony. Maybe it's in the marketplace. Maybe it's uh, uh, just a participation in a lifestyle that maybe you once had. Does it mean that I can't shop at this store or can I not buy this product anymore as a faithful Christian? Or or maybe it's something that you did regularly in your past life that maybe now that you're a Christian, you're conflicted about. Is it still okay for me to do this? Maybe because I'm a Christian now, does that mean that I have to stop cursing? Does it mean I have to stop drinking or smoking? Does it mean I have to stop hanging out with all non-Christian friends? Does it mean I need to stop watching R-rated movies and stop going to football games on Sunday? So you may chuckle a little bit about that. You may think, oh, that one at least seems a little silly. But these are all real questions that I've heard people wrestle with at times. How does a Christian live in this world but not live just like the rest of the world? This is why Paul writes this passage in 1 Corinthians 8 to instruct the church on how it can maintain its distinctive witness in the world by clearly drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is what Christianity says, and this is what the world says. This is what is acceptable behavior in the church, and this is not. This is what he's doing all throughout 1 Corinthians. And we realize that there are times when the line is not so clear cut. There are times, certainly, where the world says something is okay. This is acceptable behavior, and the Bible says, no, it is not. We have to be able to recognize that. But there are times when there are things that fall in the middle, There are things that fall in the middle, in the gray. There are disputable matters of conscience which people can genuinely disagree about. Where biblical Christians who share a pew with you every Sunday, who work and who worship with you, will disagree on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable for a Christian. So as we look at 1 Corinthians 8, my hope and my prayer is that we would be able to discern as well How we all, in the 21st century, 2,000 years from the writing of this text, can navigate biblically these disputable matters within the church. And here's the nice part. We don't actually have to look that far into the text to get Paul's thesis statement, to get to the heart of what he's talking about. See, he gives us his guiding principle in the very first three verses. See, he shows us that in the church, in authentic community, love of neighbor must supersede our desire for others to conform to our convictions. I'm just going to take a breath there because that's a lot of words, right? We're going to unpack that through that. But this is the big thesis, that love of neighbors should supersede our desire for others to conform to the convictions that we have. Because we always think that our convictions are infallible. We always think that the, the... the area that we fall on is perfect, that everyone else doesn't have it figured out, but we do. See, Paul says early in this letter that just because you may have the right to do anything, that you may come to a conclusion about anything, that doesn't always mean that it's beneficial. 
It doesn't always mean that it builds up the body. And in the case of the Corinthians, their knowledge and their exercise of their freedom that they have in Christ, it was not showing proper love to their neighbors. Those who were not spiritually mature, those who were not mature in their faith, see, they were not taking into consideration how their actions affected the body as a whole because what? They made the church all about me. We do that sometimes too, right? We make the church all about me when we don't take into consideration how our actions, how our knowledge, how our conduct affects the whole body because we're consumers, right? It's all about what I like. It's all about what I want. See, in their knowledge that they have, it puffs them up. I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in the age of watching Saturday morning cartoons, and, and one of my go-to ones was Tom and Jerry. And constantly, in, in Tom and Jerry and other cartoons like this, whenever a character would get ready for a fight, he'd take his thumb, he'd pop it into his mouth, and he'd go, and puff up his chest really big, right? To try to show that he was tough, that he was uh, ready to go towards things. And this is what the Corinthians are effectively doing. They're saying, look at how smart, look at how intelligent, look at how spiritually mature I am. I've got it figured out so I can take on the world. I've got it figured out. It's all about me. We are so much smarter. We are so much holier than you because we've got the right answer. But this kind of attitude doesn't fly in the church. This kind of attitude doesn't fly in a community that's supposed to love one another. In fact, it actually weakens and damages the community when it says that you are sub-Christian, that you are less of a Christian, that you are less holy in the eyes of God because you're not as spiritually high as I am. See, if we were to turn to the New Testament, we would call this being Pharisaic, Pharisaical. See, oftentimes we in the church, we have a tendency to want to be right more than we want to love our neighbors. Listen to me right. This isn't saying that our personal convictions don't matter. This isn't saying that the personal convictions that you have don't matter and that we should just set aside, forget about them, don't talk about them. See, if you, if you come to a conclusion about a disputable matter, you know, whether you participate and shop at Target or some other store like this that maybe doesn't stand for you, whether you drink a certain soda that has a political stance, whatever you come up with this, this doesn't mean that you should just ignore it altogether, that you should just run away and not talk about these things when you come to church. If, you're, if your conscience has affirmed this and you've gone to the Bible and you've made this decision, then honor your conscience. I'm not saying to deny this at all, but we also need to be sensitive to others in our community. And to ask if our attitude in addressing these within the body is out of, motivated out of love or if it's just a way to flaunt how holy and intelligent we are. To say, because I have Christian liberty, because I have freedom in Christ, I can just do whatever I want. Or because I'm so much smarter, I went to seminary, I went to Bible school, I've been in church for 30 years. Think about the person who this is their first Sunday. How does that feel to them? Is that showing them love? Is that showing them what the messy and beautiful community of the church is? Or is it showing us exactly what the world thinks of the church? See, Paul Gardner writes that what is ironic here is that those in Corinth who claim to uh, have this great knowledge of Christian living's best practices, see, ironically, they fail to know that love is the only clear marker of authentic Christianity and maturity of faith. It's love practiced in their love for God and for each other that they should have been pursuing. Yet 
too often in the church, it's not love that we're pursuing. It's wanting to be right. It's wanting to be holy. It's wanting to be seen in the eyes of everyone else as better. See, honestly, I, I think that this is something that we can all confess that we've done at times. I know, at least speaking for myself, that there have been times that I've looked to my Christian and brothers and sisters and scoffed at them. I say, you know, are you seriously taking a stand on this? Is this really the hill you want to die on? Like, there are so many other important things that we can address. Are we really being overly sensitive about this issue? See, whether we think our brothers and sisters are being overly sensitive or whether they're not caring enough about how people are living or what they're doing, this is a call for all of us to show grace and love rather than some kind of perceived spiritual superiority. See, the people around you, people who you share the pew with, they're not more or less holy or deficient in any way as Christians because we all are on equal standing before Christ. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. As we sang this morning, my sins are many, your sins are many, all of our sins are many, but Christ's mercy is more. See, whether my brother or sister enjoys the freedom that they have in Christ, or if their convictions pull them more towards the conservative side or the reserve side, ultimately it boils down to what John says. How do you engage in this community? John 13 says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. Not because you are so much smarter than everyone else. Not because you are uh, convicting and telling them that they are wrong all the time. But no, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Love becomes the marker of a true Christian community. See, this is the major thrust of Paul's argument here. That love of neighbor should supersede our desire for others to conform to our convictions on disputable matters. And this is the framework that Paul takes through the rest of the passage. It, he takes this, this thesis, this premise, and he says, now let's put it in the practical sense. This is the big idea, but now let's bring it down to the practical everyday lives of people. And for Corinth, the disputable matter that they're dealing with is food sacrificed to idols. And he does this in a really powerful way that doesn't diminish the convictions of some in the community, whether they say you partake or you don't partake, but he says, let's address this in a really helpful way so that both sides are heard, both sides are validated. In fact, he encourages us to say, you need to be able to pick a side. You need to be able to know where you stand on these issues because verses four and six say this. He shows us that we need to be able to make sure that we know where we stand on disputable issues. You need to know where you stand. You need to know where you are in this. See, it's good and it's right for Christians to think critically about the world that we live in. We don't want to just be uh, avoiding everything, just saying that we're just going to do our Christian thing over here and the world's going to do their thing over here. No, Christians need to think intellectually and critically about how we engage in the world. This is part of my church's mission statement. Well, the very first point of our mission statement is that we are engaging the world. We're taking a step in because what's the opposite of engage? You can talk back to me. That's okay. You disengage, right? How do you disengage from the world? You say, well, I'm not touching that with the 10-foot pole. You back up. But no, we need to know where we stand on disputable matters. We need to engage with the world around us. See, Christians should be engaging with the culture. We should know how we can think critically about the culture around us and be able to give a well-thought-out response should anyone ask. See, we shouldn't take our engagement with the world lightly and just say, that's, that's someone else's prerogative. No, you should be able to think critically about these. 
See, if you're going to take a stand on an issue, you need to be ready to give a defense of this. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 14, 5, that each of you should be fully convinced in your own mind. First Peter says similarly, that we should be able to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that we have. Use your brain. I mean, it sounds really simple, right? But use your knowledge, use this God-given ability, this God-given brain that he has given you to think critically in how your faith informs your position, how your faith informs your practice. See, listen, if, if I believe and I'm convinced that Christians are permitted to drink alcohol but should not give themselves over to drunkenness, I need to be able to back that up. I need to be able to back that up critically, but not just with my own thoughts and my feelings. I shouldn't be able to get up on my soapbox and just pontificate about why I think this position may be right, but I need the word of God to be my guide. Amen? See, while knowing full well at the same time that there may be other Christians that will use the same methods, that may use the same practice, that may go to the word of God and come up with different conclusions. We need to be able to go to the Bible as our guide. See, this is the pattern that Paul actually shows us firsthand in verses four through six. This is the pattern that all Christians should think critically about the world around them. See, he draws upon scripture to back up his claim and build his case about idol food. He says that we know that, number one, an idol is nothing at all in this world. That's point one for him. And he has in mind passages like uh, Psalm 115, which says, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust them. Listen, Paul is saying, logically, an idol is nothing at all. It's nothing but a man-made object. It has no power behind it. It is but a statue. It represents no real God and possesses no real power. It can't do anything. Therefore, it is not anything. That's point number one. He says, I go to scripture and I see that idols are powerless compared to, on the other side, our one true God. He says, on top of this, we know you know this, that there is but one God. This is something that the Jews would have ingrained into him. They've been catechized. They've been discipled from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So if there's one God, what's that idol? It's not God. See, he's going to Scripture to build his claim on his position. He's building his personal conviction about the consumption of food sacrificed to idols, about a disputable matter, using scripture as his guide. And we should too. That whenever we have disputable matters, whenever they may disagree with someone in the church, we should know where we stand using the word of God as our guide. So when we are faced with disputable matters, when brother is divided from brother, when we may agree to disagree with members of the body, we need to know where we stand using the word of God as our guide, but love of neighbor as our method. Recently, I just finished reading Eugene Peterson's biography, and they said Eugene Peterson would often uh, tell his congregation that he wants them uh, not to quote Bible verses at people, but live Bible verses among them. That's powerful, right? We can often use the word of God as a weapon to denounce and tell people why they're wrong, but we can show them the love of God and the truth of Scripture in the way that we live. Part of Christ Family Church mission statement, right? It's not yelling God's truth at people. No, it's living God's truth, right? 
See, the Bible may not directly address whether or not you go to another religion's garage sale, because, you know, garage sales weren't a big thing back in the first century world. But it does talk about the jealousy of our God. It talks about not leading others away from the truth, not being easily deceived. So some people may disagree with me on this, but through prayer and seeking God's wisdom in his word, rather than my own knowledge, I at least knew where I stand. I knew where I stood, so we didn't partake. We didn't go to this because I wanted to play it in the safe way. I didn't want to jeopardize my witness as I thought about this garage sale. But does that mean that my conviction is the law of the land? That because I'm a pastor or because I'm a Christian who went to seminary, that all of you should think exactly the same? Listen, the church is not about me. The church is about me as a pastor. It's not about Ron. It's not about Zachary as a pastor. It doesn't revolve around one singular person. The church is a messy place, and it's not about just one person except Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one person who the church is about, and it's surrounded by a messy community that's all working to follow him, working to come become more like him each and every day. So because the church is not simply around me or my own personal convictions that my, my feelings don't become the law of the land, we must be mindful of the community and mindful of that where we stand does not cause our brother or sister to stumble. Now, this is the distinction here. I say we want to know where it is that you stand personally, but that doesn't mean that I can impart where I stand on a disputable matter onto everyone else, especially if that leads that person to sin. If it breaks their conscience, if it hurts them, if it causes them to stumble, then I've made the church more about me than the gospel. See, not everyone in the church will share the same convictions as you. I just know that as a fact, and that's okay. But we need to make sure that our convictions are not leading people towards sin because our job is to lead people towards Christ. So at times, in the body, in the messy community, this means that you will at times have to defer your own conviction so that your brother and sister may be built up rather than indulging in your Christian liberty. So what does this look like practically, right? See, if I believe that it's all right for Christians to watch football on Sundays, but my brother in Christ believes that the Sabbath is a set-apart day, that it's holy and sacred, and that it's supposed to be God-honoring. So because of that, they, mean, that believe, they believe that there should be no football parties or no tailgates on a Sunday. Then out of love for him, out of love for my community and love for my brother in Christ, I am not going to watch football in his presence, right? I'm not going, even if I disagree with him, even if I disagree on his methods of it, I see his point. I see where he's coming from. So because of my love for him, I'm not going to invite him to tailgates. I'm not going to go over to his house and watch it on my phone because for him, he matters more than my personal conviction. See, if I'm with Christians who are convicted that believers should not drink alcohol, then guess what? I'm not going to be drinking in their presence. Why is that? It's because my love for my brother is far more important than my love for Christian liberty. See, this doesn't mean that I have to forever bend my conviction uh, to uh, get everyone else's approval. It doesn't mean that we're, we're all going to go down the road of hyper-fundamentalism or anything like that. It doesn't even mean that I have to change my own conviction. But what Paul is saying here is that unity in the body is more important than the liberty of the individual. And that's something for the American church to really chew on a little bit. 
We got to think about that because we live in a hyper-individualized culture where my personal convictions, my, my own truth is the law of the land. But can we think communally for a minute? Can our communal conscience be that of love of brother and sister in the body? Where we could seek unity rather than individuality. Because of your love for your brother and sister, ask yourselves, do you think that you may be able to forego your conviction so that you don't offend them? Or is that conviction that important to you? Is it more important than your brother or sister in Christ? See, Paul puts it this way in verse 9. He says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. Now, you may say, well, Paul, that sounds a little judgmental, right? We're just talking about, like, love and unity in the body of Christ. Now you're calling some people weak? Like, you have a weak conscience? It seems a little passive-aggressive, right? Anyone else passive-aggressive in here? I just want to see if anyone raised their hand. No one wants to admit that, right? Hey, thank you. There we go. At least one person. You're calling some people weak, right? That doesn't seem really loving in community. See, what Paul is doing here is he's simply differentiating between two groups, probably using their own language against them. He's saying, you may fall on one side, you may fall on the other. But however you may fall, the point is that you're called to love one another. In fact, the weak in this case are actually those who have maybe a hyperactive or a robust conscience. Those who maybe uh, are on a sense of, of feeling uh, they want to be protective, they want to be safe, they don't want to encroach upon God's word. See, the weak in this case are those who think that it's wrong to eat food sacrificed to idols as it might be perceived as celebrating in pagan practices. I don't want to look like just the rest of the world. See, Wicked Strong does not here talk about the genuinity or authenticity of one's faith. In fact, we could have easily just said those on the political right and the political left, or those on the, the religious right and the religious left, one who has a more conservative view or one who has a more progressive view. Paul is simply, whether you fall here or there, can we show love to our brother and sister who we disagree with? See, what it boils down to is this. Is my exercise of freedom, is my personal conviction more important than my brother and sister in Christ? Sit with that for a minute. Because I think immediately we jump to the fact that, well, of course, they're, it's not that important. But do we make it that important? Do we really think that that personal conviction is more important than someone made in the image of God? Paul writes this in verse 13. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother and sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again. So I will not cause them to fall. See, what Paul is doing here is he's showing us what it looks like to prioritize people over positions, to humbly live together in a messy and authentic community that's not just all about me, but it's about us following Jesus together. I mean, just look at how Paul uses his own freedom later on. He knows that he has been set free from the pharisaical point of view, this whole mindset, this whole framework. In verse, or chapter 9, he writes this. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And this is what it looks like practically. He says, to the Jews, I've become like a Jew. I've acted like a Jew. I've talked their language. I've engaged with them in their culture in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, 
so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. See, Paul shows us what it looks like to give up much of what we feel we may deserve or we may be entitled to because I've been a lifelong Christian. I've gone to seminary. I've done all the right things. I feel like I'm entitled to my position and everyone should bend to it. But for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our brothers and sisters, can we give that up in order to build the church up? It's not just about me. It's not just about my feelings or my convictions, but that the sake of the gospel taking root in my brothers and sisters is far more important than these secondary issues. See, we're called to build one another up, not to tear them down. See, it's true that we may not agree on everything. Let me tell you today, if you've not heard this before, that's okay. It's okay. Because we in the body of Christ are united in what is most important, what is most essential. And that is, no matter who we are, we stand on equal footing before a Savior. We stand sinful and broken, and we need Jesus, who comes to us in our weakness, in our brokenness, and he says, I love you. Not because of what you've done for me, but despite of the things that you've done against me. But I've come for you, that I love you dearly, and I've called you to become more like me. Believe in me. Hear my truth and live into my truth. And he says, go, make disciples. You follow me. Don't push people away. Don't get so caught up into the little positions and the little convictions that we're actually driving people away from the church rather than bringing them into the church. Ultimately, we're bringing people in to know the word of God and live the word of God in their everyday lives. Listen, the church may be a little messy. It's going to be a lot of messy at times. It's people who may act pretty different from one another, but it's love that binds us together and love that builds us up to be more like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your grace, for your mercy, for your love that came to us not because of what we have earned or what we have deserved, but because of your immense grace and love for us. You have been good. We are thankful for that. But you've also called us into community with one another, a community that doesn't, by the world standard, make a lot of sense. We disagree, we argue, we quabble about this thing and that. but you call the church beautiful. You called us into this messy body of believers to be more like you, to humble ourselves daily as we interact with those around us, as we lead with love and lead others into your truth. God, help us. because We need help in this. I'm not good at this. We're not good in this. But it's not by our own strength. It's by yours. Help us live into your power. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes and dwells within us, that gives us the power to be the church you've called us to be. And God, when we don't know what to say, when we we don't know what to do, we're thankful that we can fall back into your arms, fall back into your guidance, and that we too can pray as Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey again, we hope you enjoyed that teaching from Pastor Thomas and being a part of what God is doing here at Christ Family Church. If you'd like to come visit us in person sometime, we meet every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. And if you'd like more information on our church, you can head over to ChristFamilyChurch.org. Once again, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great week.